times where I've been talking, and it, it, it occurs often, more often, the higher percentage time, when I've been talking to a young person or a person who sees themselves as fairly mature in their faith. And <clears throat> I'll be talking to them about what should be, or what it is that I think God would have us to do, and they give me a look kind of like, maybe narrow their brow a little bit, and, and I'll say something like, you know, we may even have to die for our faith, or we have to give until it hurts, or we have to serve even when we don't want to. And I'll give a specific illustration of that. And they kind of turn their eyes away, and there's a little exhalation of breath like this. And I have taken that to mean that 
they have determined me to be just a little bit too intense, to be a little over the top, to be a little bit too much into what I believe, a little too stalwart or a little too pushy or a little too outspoken, and that they are dismissing me at that moment because I am a little too intense. It has occurred to me that I can be very intense. I have argued for what I believe in until I could barely stay awake. I have played sports beyond injuries. I have given uh, financially when I, met, I knew it meant I didn't know how the bill was going to be paid or how the food was going to be purchased. Um, I've left the house in my car to help somebody with no gas in the tank, no money in my pocket, and no cards to buy any gas with. So maybe I am a little bit intense. But I encourage you to think about that intensity as we look today at a passage of Scripture. And as we look at it, I want you to understand that this passage of Scripture um, on the surface appears very unforgiving, very unmerciful, very ungracious, very unkind. Look behind the scenes and see rather God's great grace displayed and out of that grace I hope find your own intensity. The sermon is entitled Unnecessarily Squishy and you'll see how that comes together by the end. So grab your Bibles if you would. It is a long passage of scripture and I will not give a lot of explanation as we go through it but I will ask you to be focused, ask you to look intently at this passage of Scripture, would you say amen or give me another noise, something that you can come up with as we go to Joshua chapter 8? Yes! Come on now. Somebody said nothing. I hope you believe that this Scripture will change your life. Not could, but will. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. By the way, before I begin to read this very first word that says now, I sent out a text to, to some folks and posted on Facebook and tagged some folks about a recap of the first seven chapters that I did, put, and it was pieced together from, sermon, from the sermons. It wasn't new. Um, if you have not listened to it, if you did not get that text or that email or whatever, I would encourage you to do that. I am not going to go back and recap the first seven chapters of the book of Joshua today. Because if I did that, it would take me, according to what that radio, uh, audio took, 11 minutes. And we don't have that time because this is, this is something else. We've got to get to it. All right? So Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Notice that that is in contrast to what he's been saying to Joshua all along. He's been saying, um, be courageous uh, and do not fear, be courageous, be bold. And now he says, don't fear, be dismayed. In other words, don't be stymied, don't, uh, don't be held back by this turn of events. And if you don't know what those turn of events were, I may touch on them later in the points, but uh, that's up through Joshua chapter 7. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle. Spoil means like its wealth, the good stuff. And its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose... 30,000 men. That's a much larger number. It's 10 times the number of people that came against IE the first time. Valiant warriors. He sent them out at night. We'll stop there for one second. Notice the contrast between this and Jericho. 
When they went against Jericho, God said that everything that was there would be under the ban, which means it would be all dedicated to him. They weren't allowed to have anything. That after they walked around the city for the seven days, he told them that. That after they uh, faced their fears and overcame and crossed the river of Jericho and were circumcised on this side of the river and all of that, he said everything that's in there will be under the ban. all belongs to God, can't take any wealth. Now he says they can have the spoil and the cattle as plunder for themselves. And he's, he's about to get into tactics. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. He chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, sent them out at night. He commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out to meet us, as at the first, we will flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. So back in chapter 7, there was that attack on, on there that failed, and the men of Ai came out and defeated the Israelites. So we will flee before them, and you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into, into your hand. Then it will be, when you have seized the city, that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away. They went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up with the elders of Israel before the, the people to Ai. Then all the people at war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, and its rear guard on the west side of the city. So they've got the city surrounded, but they're not really sieging it per se. They've got it surrounded, um, and they've got that large force in preparation for ambush. Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. So that's that valley that's between where the, the main encampment is and the city. And it came about when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle, he and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel, and they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. All right, so just make sure you're following the tactics. Huge army retreats before the men. The men are chasing them, and every man in the city is coming out. Because why? Because the plunder's at stake. Because the many casualties. Last time they didn't get very many casualties. They're going to make sure to kill as many Israelites as they can because they're going to keep coming against us until we finish them off, and so on. So they come out in totality. All of them come out. All their strength and all their might, all their fighting men come out against Israel, which leaves their city undefended, their area around their city undefended, their women and children undefended. Their, their wealth that they didn't carry with them, undefended. The ambush rises up, takes the city, and they begin to set it on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, 
and they had no place to flee this way or that. For the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness, the army that was running away from them, turned against their pursuers. So now the army's not running away anymore. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel. So the big army that was fleeing no longer is fleeing. It's standing there, standing its ground. And the men who set the city on fire, they come up behind them. And so now they're pinched in between. There were some on this side and some on that side. And they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. So they killed every last warrior. Now then Israel was finished killing all, when Israel was kill, finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness when they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed. Then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So all the warriors are out, and they go in and they're killing everyone. And, and all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. So remember, God said, put out your javelin, put out your hand with the javelin in it, and I will give you the city. And the army came up, took the city, set the fire. The armies collide, they come together, they collapse on all the men of Ai, destroy all of them, then turn on the city and destroy all the women. No mercy. Joshua did not withdraw his hand through all of that. He kept the javelin out through all of that. He gave the order, if you will, the sign, if you will, to destroy all of the inhabitants. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of the city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset, Joshua gave command, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. No mercy, no kindness, no grace. To the very bitter end, they killed them all. I want to speak to you about avoiding a two-front war. That's what happened. If the men of Ai stay in the city when the army approaches, rather than going out and pursuing the army or meeting at the army in the field, then they could be sieged. And that isn't good. Sieged is not good. Struggling to the point of almost defeat, that is not a good situation. But the men of, the, the men of Ai do not stay in the city. They come out and they pursue the fleeing army, believing that the army is running away in defeat as they did the first time, when they were only 3,000 strong, when they were, when Achan, the troubler, was in their midst, they pursue them. They think they have essentially a one-front war. They believe that they're going to destroy Israel's army. But then the men rise up in ambush, they take the city, and the smoke begins to rise, and they realize, uh-oh, what we have is a two-front war. We have a real problem. And then it became a two-front war that didn't even include the city. The city is lost and they're stuck between both parts of the army. Uh, at Madhouse, and a, a lot of times when we have youth activities, we play a, a game called Chinese Dodgeball. And basically, the Chinese Dodgeball is played like this. There's one ball. When you have the ball, you're allowed to take four steps. You go to anybody you want. Everybody else is allowed to run wherever they want. If you get hit or someone catches your ball, you're out. The person that gets you out then later gets out, you're back in the game. 
My favorite version of Chinese dodgeball has a twist. There's a second or maybe even a third ball. We have one young man who comes to play uh, Madhouse play dodgeball fairly frequently. I would say he's there probably um, seven out of eight times. And he's very, very good at dodgeball. He's good at dodging. He's fast. He's got good aim. He can throw those balls that don't really fly all that well, is the truth, all the way across the room with relative accuracy. Um, sometimes he makes an amazing catch or an amazing shot. We're playing, do playing Chinese dodgeball like that. He picks up the ball. He jumps four steps to the center of the room, and he's prepared to throw the ball. And then all of a sudden, from behind him, comes a ball that hits him squarely in the back, and he's out before he can get anybody out. Well, he had forgotten the second ball. When he picked up the ball, the, that second ball was laying on the ground. No one had it. But someone was on that end of the room who was not out. They picked up the ball. So as he's taking his four steps out toward the people that he's going to try to hit, they're taking their four steps up on his rear end. He's not thinking about it. Bam, he's out just like that. No chance to catch it. No chance to dodge. He was not aware of an enemy coming up on his rear end. Are you aware of an enemy coming up on your rear end? Now, there's a few things in this text. The first thing I want you to see is that you have this going for you at the first. As a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you have this going for you at the first. The enemy, whatever enemy it might be, will not expect you to be strong. He, it, will not expect you to stand up. The fact is, before you were a believer, you had a history of weakness. Maybe even as a young believer, you had a history of weakness. This, this creates a complacency in the enemy. Our enemy is not expecting you to be strong until you've shown that you are strong. But realize at the same time that our enemy can use this same tactic. You can have victory after victory after victory in a certain area in your life only to see a temptation rise up that you are not prepared for something come up that kind of catches you unawares, comes from behind or so on, and you wind up in a two-front war. You are advancing forward. I am doing what I am supposed to be doing. I am being the person I'm supposed to be. I am living out my own integrity in Christ, and then all of a sudden, something overtakes me, and I am down. What, where did that come from? What happened? Well, the enemy is not going to quit until Jesus comes again and puts him away. Whatever those enemies are, in your life, just because you're having great victory in one area by no means makes you not susceptible to attack from another area or even from that same area in a new and creative way. He is waiting for us to be in a difficult situation where we may be in need of our resources or where the things that we have left behind us unprotected, they are of great value to us, are exposed, and then he strikes. And as we've seen with the battle of Ai, a two-front war is a deadly thing. You can't fight successfully a two-front war unless you have dedicated some of your resources to the advancement and some of your resources to the protecting. And that is dangerous in and of itself. Because now, you, have, you will occasionally or even often have to make a decision about what's more important to you. Is defeating the enemy more important? Or is protecting my family, my home, my money, my whatever more important? Which is it? So you're in a two-front war before a two-front war ever comes. You can't win in a two-front war. A two-front war is a deadly thing. Let's talk for a moment about the possible opposition to us. 
Well, the possible opposition in the spiritual realm or in the world in general includes God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not accepted that Jesus paid the price for your sins, if you have not accepted that he has a right to be Lord of your life, then you're fighting a two-front war. Whatever it might be. Whatever the thing that's become important to you, whatever you're trying to accomplish, trying to appear like a Christian or, or trying to be basically honest or trying to get wealthy or, or just trying to make sure all your bills are paid, whatever you're trying to accomplish, that's your forward advancement. That's you trying to be victorious. At the same time, you are completely undermined by the fact that there's nobody taking care of your business. There's nobody sustaining you. There's nobody filling you up from the inside with everlasting living water. And so you're trapped in a two-front war that you cannot win. Let's assume for a moment they have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then this much you know, the devil is your enemy. Satan. For the longest time throughout the Old Testament, we didn't have a really good picture of who the devil was. It's, it's not unclear in the book of Job that he is the accuser. The word Satan, by the way, comes from the Greek, Satan, accuser. The devil is the accuser. His main tactic is to accuse. He accused Job to Job. He accused Job to God. And God allowed him to strike Job and everything in his life. And so we began to get a picture of who he is. But we really see a picture of who he is in Matthew chapter 4 when he comes to tempt Jesus. And Jesus talks about him as Defeated or fallen, but not once for always defeated and fallen. No, he's still in the fight until that day at which he's gone forever. So we have the devil himself who can put thoughts in a person's head, but he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. The chances are that you personally have never had a word from Satan put in your head, that you personally have never been tempted by Satan because he's not everywhere. And the fact is that most of us are not really all that important in the grand scheme of things. But he can do that. And then, of course, he has great schemes. He's got all these plans that are in place. So social media is part of a scheme. TV's part of a scheme. Radio's part of a scheme. Talk show hosts, they're part of a scheme. Magazine's part of a scheme. Family activities that you're involved in that don't center around God, that's all part of a scheme. Organized sports and schools and college, professional sports, all part of a scheme. Now, are all these things bad things? No, they're not bad things. But they're all part of a scheme to drag people away and tempt people to not pay attention to that which we're really right, to put them in the position of a two-front war, essentially. So he's got his schemes. But then there are evil spirits. I don't know how many evil spirits there are, but I know there's a lot of them. There may be as many evil spirits as there are people. So you might have one dedicated evil spirit just for you. There may be twice as many evil spirits as there are people living. I don't know how many there are, but there's a lot of them. And they're real. The Bible says they're real. And when they were going out and healing people, it says they were casting out evil spirits. So there are evil spirits of infirmity, of sickness. When the man was throwing himself in rages of anger and his anger was taken care of and he was gone and he was sitting there calmly, peacefully as they came to see what had happened, it was evil spirits that had been cast out of him. So there are evil spirits that involve anger, evil spirits that involve frustration, evil spirits that involve broken hearts or emotional struggles of all kinds. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have real health conditions or real mental health conditions. What I'm saying is the Bible teaches that many of the problems that we regularly relegate only to the medical realm were actually spiritual problems instigated by evil spirits. Because when the disciples went out and cast out evil spirits, these problems went away. 
So discernment to know when it's a, a medical problem and when it's a spiritual problem, well, that would be a very valuable thing. So we've got a potential of God being an enemy. We've got the devil as an enemy before and after you get saved because the last thing he wants you to do is get saved. Same thing with evil spirits. The last thing they want you to do is get saved. And then after you're saved, the devil and evil spirits are your enemy, but God is not. Not that he can't be your opposition if you're doing something that is opposed to him, but he's not your enemy. The flesh is an enemy. It's the fleshly desire. It's the things that your body wants that's not good for your soul. Or the things that your body wants that might be good for your soul done in a way that's bad for your soul. So your flesh can be an enemy. The world system can be an enemy. The world has an order of how they do things, how you should behave, and so on. And those orders, those rules, those mores, as they're called, oftentimes are in contrast to Scripture. And so that can be an enemy. Cares can be an enemy. What do you care about? What are you passionate about? What are you concerned about? That can be an enemy. It can rear up just when you're not expecting it, especially. The riches, wealth can be your enemy. Having money is not a sin. But what you do with your money is either sin or it's not. So having the money is the perfect opportunity. And the area of money is an area that can rise up and cause a problem. So let's look briefly at how to avoid a two-front war. And then as we come to the conclusion, I'm fair warning you right now that we're going to do quite a bit of Scripture. Much of it I will paraphrase, but if you're a note-taker or a studier, I would encourage you to be prepared to write them down. If you've got a, a discussion guide, definitely. If you don't have a discussion guide, there's one back there, and someone has been kind enough to even leave you a pencil, and I have two pens. So if anybody needs one, I would suggest you make notes at that time because I'm going to use a lot of Scripture uh, to see how Jesus talks about this topic. So, how to avoid a two-front war. First and foremost, if you want to avoid a two-front war, you've got to get something behind you. We uh, occasionally have Belagarth events, Belagarth are foam weapon fighting events, where the core is made of plastic, you can see there are a couple of other flexible things, and then the outside is made of foam. And then over top of that, you put a cover, and it's sword fighting, basically, swords or axes or whatever. Almost two years ago now, in the summer, uh, there was a young man who came to one of our Belagarth events. We went to Wait High School, did some inviting, and he came. And seemed like a pretty nice guy, and he was decent with his weapon. And we were playing a game called uh, Last Men Standing, where he and I were the only two people uh, on one side, and everyone else had surrounded us, and we were going to fight to the death. And the idea was, if you're really, really good at this game, even though you're the last two people there, you can fight off eight or ten people and potentially survive. And so I said, back to back. You've got to have something behind you. You've got to have something behind you if you don't want to be fighting a two-front war. One person standing in the midst of eight or ten people, it's only a matter of time before you die. By the way, if you've watched like Bruce Lee movies and stuff like that, they don't really come one at a time. right? They just all come in and stick you with their sword, and you might parry five, and the other five kill you. They don't really come one at a time. right? They surround you, get three to five of them on you at once. You've got to have something behind you. So we go back to back. I killed two people in the first seven seconds. And then I got hit in the back as hard as I've ever been hit in my life playing Belagard. In fact, it, I got a bruise in the middle of my back that lasted over a month because he got up and left me. You've got to have something at your back. About three seconds after he got up and left me, they killed him. We lost that battle in 15 seconds. 
where we might have won or we might have stood strong or we might have survived a while longer anyway if he'd have stayed at my back. And he seemed like a nice guy, but I gave him what for right after that battle. And I said, if you're going to fight a two-front, or in our case it was a seven-front war, you've got to have something at your back. Get a wall at your back. Get something solid at your back if you're fighting the enemy. Go back to back. We have historical sin. What's behind us? <laughs> we did things we never should have done. Maybe today. That's got to go behind. It's got to be gone. It's got to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus came to do. Put that behind. We have our rebirth behind us. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made new. And that ought to be, the truth is, that ought to be what you stand on. That ought to be at your back all the time. That's your solid basis. I know I am saved because I was made new. You say, oh yeah, I sinned, but I repent of that sin. I turn back to the Lord. He's cleansed me and made me whole again. And I'm going to advance on this one principle. I am born again. If you've embraced the things of the Spirit, if you've at times lived for the Lord, when you've been living for the Lord, you know that you had success. That's a track record. That's history. That's you going, I was doing the right thing and the right things were happening in me. I was accomplishing something. I was growing. That's something you can have at your back as you know that you're, you're able to do what it is that you're supposed to do. And then we fight with faithfulness and aggressiveness in one direction. How to avoid Fighting, a two, fighting on two fronts, have something at your back, and then fight, fight faithfully and aggressively in one direction. You realize, by the way, it says, when they turned around and looked at I.E. and realized it was burning. Well, what's back there? Their families, their wealth, their land. What's at stake? Their families, their wealth, their land? No. That's lost. It's already gone. It's already fallen to the enemy, and it's already burning. And they could have got back there as fast as they could have got back there, and they couldn't have put those fires out. And once the fire spreads to seven or ten houses, and this was an army of thousands burning that city. Do you know how many fires they probably started to burn that city? At least hundreds. There's no putting that out. Columns of smoke rising in the sky. There's no saving that. Now, it's great remorse that filled them. Oh, it's horrible that we can't go back and save our, our women, or we can't go back and save our land, or we can't go back and save our money. And that hesitation was the time that it took for the men who were there burning that city to come up and form the front behind them. What happens if they charge with all their aggressiveness, with all their might into the army that's in front of them? Well, at the very least, they don't wind up in a two-front war. Could they still fall? Could they still die? Yes. Would they have taken a lot more Israelites with them? Certainly. The hesitation, the concern about what was behind them, about the city they left behind, is what led them, what made them able to be trapped in that huge ambush between the big army that's in front of them and the big army that's behind them. You must go forward aggressively and faithfully. Get something behind you and then go forward aggressively and faithfully. The truth is, if you can go forward fast enough, if you can go aggressively enough and faithfully enough forward, then you don't have to worry about what's behind you. Half of the offensive football plays in football are based on this principle. Let them through on the right side of the line because the guy will be long gone on the left side of the line. Right? A, a large lineman pulls out of the line and comes to the left along the line and blocks in front of the running back that's coming out of the backfield, leaving a huge hole over here, but the hole doesn't matter because that running back runs the 40-yard dash in five or six seconds and be long gone. Right? We don't have to worry about that. And then those... Defensive linemen come through and they're like, ah, oh, there's nobody here to tackle. Aggressively, faithfully forward is both an offensive and a defensive tactic, essentially. How to avoid a two-front two 
Front war, number one, get something behind you. Number two, fight aggressively forward in the direction that you want to go. Now, what does that look like for Christians? Just very briefly, applying the spiritual disciplines. I, I was doing some research on this throughout the internet, and I read on a, a blog. Uh, this guy was talking about how to get moving in your life. He was not a Christian. He didn't mention Jesus. talking about how to get moving in your life. And he said that there was a great mathematician that said this. said that the, the great success in civilization will be had in this way. This is how you will be greatly successful in civilization. When we as a people take things that we do all the time and turn them into disciplines or habits, take things that you need to do all the time and turn them into disciplines or habits, so that there won't be a question about whether you do that or not. Does anybody here this morning who got out of bed this morning and debated whether or not they were going to wear clothing to come to worship today? Was that a raging debate for anybody? Carrie said yes, but she's being funny. Okay, Nobody had that raging debate, right? If you had that raging debate in, on Sunday morning when you're thinking about whether or not to wear clothes to worship, guess what? There's a chance you might not show up for worship. The proof is this. If you discipline yourselves to do what's right, and it becomes a discipline, it becomes a habit, I will never not do what I know is right, then you don't have to worry about the question of whether or not you're going to do it down the road. It's no longer a two-front fight. It's not a two-front fight as to whether or not I get up and go to worship on Sunday morning. You understand? I was uh, polishing the sermon and preparing and making sure while most everyone here was still in bed this morning. Somebody was up preparing their Sunday school lesson this morning early because they forgot to do it. Somebody was up plowing the lot or, or taking care of the building early this morning. Were you still getting out of bed and thinking about what you're going to wear and am I going to wash my hair or not? People were working to make this possible. You understand? And they don't have to ask themselves whether or not they're going to do that. So once I get out of bed on Sunday morning and my sermon is written and I'm polishing my sermon, which I started my sermon on Monday, once I get out of bed on Sunday morning, my sermon is written, I don't have to wonder whether I'm going to be here to preach or not. You know why? Not just because I've been preparing to do that, but because God has been miraculously working on my, on my behalf to defeat the evil spirits that have been trying to stop me from getting to the conclusions that I need to get to so that I can adjust, so that I can repent, so that I can come with a contrite heart before the Lord and share with you what I've discovered. If you repent before this sermon is over, you recognize you're doing something wrong, don't think you're the first. I repented on Wednesday morning. Had to pray to the Lord, ask him forgiveness for not being the kind of Christian that this text points out to me that I'm supposed to be. If you're sitting there thinking, no, he's just making that up or whatever, it isn't like that. I'm a human being just like you are. But because I did that, I knew on Wednesday morning that I would be here preaching this sermon on Sunday. Because God worked on my behalf on Wednesday to make it possible, there's no way he was going to do that without finishing the work. And we know that's who God is. And you're the same way. right? So you debate with yourself about whether or not you can tithe. You debate with yourself about whether or not you can block out another day of the week to do ministry. You debate with yourself about whether you can get up an extra hour early to work out to improve your physique. As long as you're debating, you're fighting a two-front war. Stop. We're not created for a two-front war. Was Jesus fighting a two-front war? And he invited us to join him. You know, what's interesting was, Jesus was fighting a two-front war, as we'll see in a moment as we look at these final texts. But what did he do to win that war? Well, he put something behind him, and he advanced aggressively and faithfully forward to the cause that the Lord gave him to go forward. Don't underestimate the enemy. That's the second. It's the next to the last one on the list of how to not wind up in a two-front war. So it was 
get something behind you. Fight aggressively and faithfully forward. I'm sorry, that's the third one. Don't underestimate the enemy. He knows more than you do. I'm sorry, it's true. God knows more than he does. And God can give you the information that you need to know what you need to know to know more than the enemy in a given situation. But the reality is that enemy that we're talking about, whether he's in your money or your finances, or your health, or your situation, your relationships, whatever, he's been around for thousands of years and you've been around for decades. He knows more than you do. Talk about the scripture. He knows more about the scripture than you do. He's got it wrong. He doesn't understand what God's doing, what his purposes are and like that. But he knows the literal word, the written text of the scripture better than you do. Don't, ask, don't underestimate your enemy. Don't say, it's okay if I leave that thing undone, which God has given me to do, while I try to do this thing that God has given me to do. I didn't do it yesterday. I wasn't faithful yesterday. And that thing still remains a problem in my life. But today it'll be fine, right? So, uh, you know, I can be involved with a little bit of pornography or a little bit of lust or a little bit of keeping back my money while I go out and serve God, or while I take care of my children, or while I raise my family this way, or while I try to do everything I do every day as if I'm doing it for the Lord, I can have that little holdout thing that's back there. You think the enemy can't find that holdout? You think he can't use it against you? Absolutely. The next thing you know, you'll look back, it'll be on fire. And while you're debating whether to go back and put out that fire, you will lose what's right in front of you. It's nothing less than your life. It's nothing less than everything that God has given you. These last couple are a little tougher. Number one, don't, out of this group, don't stretch yourself too thin. When Israel first came against Ai, they brought 3,000 men. Huge army sitting there literally with nothing to do. Literally. Eating food. <laughs> hanging out. Working. Maybe drilling. Training. Resting. And they sent 3,000 men against Ai. 12,000. They stretched themselves too thin and they lost that battle. Now, that was all because of Achan, we understand. That was all because of the unfaithfulness at what happened at Jericho. If you don't know that story, go back and look at it. But the point is, they stretch themselves too thin, and we do the same thing. Why? Why do we stretch ourselves too thin? You know, you, you cannot stretch yourself too thin doing the things that God wants you to do. It's not possible. If, if you're doing what God wants you to do, it's not possible for you to want, run out of resources. That's not possible. Hence the feeding of the 5,000 can't run out of resources if you're doing what God wants you to do. So why do we stretch ourselves too thin? Because we're busy doing not only what God wants us to do, but also what we want to do. That's separate from what God wants us to do. What other people want us to do. That's separate from what God wants us to do. We've got all these tag-on things that we're trying to do. All these other directions that we're trying to go while we're trying to be faithful to God. Don't stretch yourself too thin. Don't do that. Break your ties. This one hurts. Break your ties. So does that mean a man gets unmarried if he's married? No, absolutely not. That's not what it means. Does it mean a man stops taking care of his children in order to serve God? No, absolutely not. That's not what it means. Because those things are both commanded by God. You're supposed to do them. A man doesn't take care of his family. He's worse than an unbeliever. So you're supposed to do that. Does it mean you quit your job and live like a pauper to serve the Lord? Almost certainly not. There are a few cases in which God has commanded such a thing. But they're rare. Very rare, which means it's probably not you. Probably not me. But you break the ties of the things that are in your life that you love enough to challenge your aggressive and faithful forward moving. Because when the enemy hits you there, I can't tell you the number of times that I've been trying to do something that would have really been miraculous. And in a few cases, it was truly miraculous for the Lord. And one of my kids wound up really sick. Or one of my kids had a blow up not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I, and I wind up in a 45-minute lecture, which they hate. And I hate, tell you the truth but it had to happen. 
the enemy will hit you where you're squishy. But don't be unnecessarily squishy, right? When you go out to do ministry, you take your family with you. When you go out to do what you're supposed to do, you take your wife or your husband with you. To the best of your ability, you take it. Don't choose a wife or a husband who doesn't love the Lord if you have that option. Don't marry somebody who's not going to go with you to serve the Lord. Paul warned against that, right? Jesus, by the way, talks a little bit about how, it's easy, how easy it is for marriage to stop. Understand this fact. God has sent you into the fight. You didn't send yourself. You didn't choose this. God chose you. You didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose you. You simply responded in the affirmative when he asked you to allow him to be Lord of your life. You said, okay, yes, I will. He was pleading with you from the moment you could understand. You didn't choose him. You accepted him. Real quick on an aside, and then we're moving into the conclusion, which is packed full of scripture, as I mentioned before. Once God gives you permission to get into it with a certain stronghold, God's desired outcome must be honored. Beware, if you sustain the stronghold that God has told you to wipe out, then it is just that. It is you in opposition to God. You are keeping the enemy alive. The fact is that Satan deserves no kindness, no mercy. If you give kindness and mercy to Satan, to evil spirits, to the world system, to your flesh, to your cares, if you give it, then realize that those enemies have not and will not change. God can change people. But notice that at this, at this time in their story, in the case of the Canaanites, God tried for 400 years to change the Canaanites and just one of those babies that they burned alive in the fire, the first they burned all their firstborn children alive in the fire as they worshiped Moloch, just one of those babies that they burned alive in the fire would have been enough for God to ordain the destruction of the city of Ai. Let's not kid ourselves. These are enemies. Do you need to wisely sort what enemies are? Yes, you do. We no longer have as our enemies flesh and blood. We do not have people as we do not take people as our enemies. People will act as enemies toward us, but that does not make them your enemy. The enemy is the evil spirits, the enemy is the world, the enemy is Satan, the enemy is that which would spiritually stop people from getting saved because we are at our very core witnesses for the living Christ. The hive must die. The hive produces more workers. Even though you say, okay, that's done. I'm going to defeat this enemy in my life. And you take the temptation out for a while. Taking the temptation out of your life that would stop you from serving Jesus is not enough. Running from temptation when it comes is not enough. Responding to that temptation with spiritual disciplines, with prayer and the word and meditation and memorization and silence and solitude, and the list goes on. Giving and serving, responding to temptation with spiritual disciplines, with the tools that God has given you so that that temptation looks like a dirty, nasty, garbage piece of junk that you would never eat off of or never take into your life, never have anything to do. That's enough. Crush it like the enemy that it is. Being able to look at a cupcake and say, that's my third cupcake, I'm not going to eat it. 
That is not enough. Knowing in advance the enemies that we will face, putting things behind us, moving forward aggressively in the areas that God has commanded us, and faithfully, without quitting, not spreading ourselves too thin. These are the things that are enough. Everything else will result in a two-front war, and you cannot win. Don't get caught in a two-front war. This is the conclusion. The world is full of two-front wars. Full. I uh, had opportunity on a number of occasions to debate somebody on a tenet of Christianity. And inevitably, you know what they try to do? They try to drag me into a two-front war. They will say, well, you say that, but what about this, right? I am here to tell you today that I am 100% absolutely without certain reservations against abortion. Abortion is murdering babies who are innocent before God. You can say, well, I'm for abortion in certain circumstances. If you do that, you are fighting a two-front war. You will never win a victory over murdering babies while saying there are certain conditions under which a person should be allowed to have an abortion. You say, but what if the mother might die? Okay, it's a tragedy that people die. It's a tragedy that a mother might die. It's a tragedy that a mother might be put in a position where she has to make a choice between her child and herself. All that is wrong. I am against all of that, too. It's not a two-front war. Because all of those things line right up with abortion. I am against abortion, and I am against all of those things that could possibly be a reason for abortion. And because I am against those things, does not make me for abortion under certain circumstances. Now, you have to make your own choices. I'm just using that as an illustration. What I'm saying to you is, there are a lot of things like that in the world. I am against taking the Lord's name in vain. I do not make an exception for, oh my God, that's so big. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. His name is God, that's taking it in vain. I do not make an exception for, OMG, he really said that. Because now we've abbreviated it down to an acronym, so we're not taking the Lord's name in vain, right? Except when people read it, what do they think it means? It means, oh my God. So I do not make an exception for that. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in taking the Lord's name in vain. If you make an exception for that, then you've got to ask yourself, are you standing up for what the Lord says? Don't take his name in vain. Not my commandment, by the way. It's in the Ten Commandments. It goes all the way to the beginning. If he's God, don't take him lightly. When you say his name, make sure you're praising him or addressing him or asking him a question. And the list goes on. The problem is the world is full of two front wars because why? Because they understand that the kingdom of God, a house divided against itself, cannot stand. Start deciding where you stand and then stop dividing the issue. And when they try to divide the issue, you take your stand and say, no, I understand. It's a horrible thing that that situation exists. I am against that too. And I, by the way, actually working. I don't just get on there and text about it or whatever. I'm actually working, sharing the gospel. By the way, the more the gospel spreads, the more people get saved, the less people will be put in a decision like what we're discussing. Because we will be advancing aggressively and faithfully running the course, 
and they will join us, some of them, and they will advance aggressively and faithfully and run, and, uh, run the course with us, and they also will begin to see these things as not divided issues. The world is full of divided issues because it understands that if they can back you into accepting this in one case and not in another, now you're in a two-front war. For example, maybe you think it's horrible that people die. And you are tragically hit by the death of your loved ones when they die. That's common. Everybody believes that, right? But maybe you don't have near as much mercy for a drug dealer who dies in a shootout. And you're like, eh, well, he got what he deserved, right? You just put yourself in a two-front war. That's a human being. That's a person that God created, that God loved so much that he died for them. If you hadn't accepted Christ, you wouldn't be any better than them. Whosoever keeps the whole law and yet offends at one point, he is guilty of all. You ever tell a lie, you're just as guilty as any drug dealer, rapist, incest, murderer, etc. Why are you better than them? How dare you? How dare you think it's okay for the evil people of the world to die to their sins, to their own two-front war, to lose their lives? But it's a tragedy when your loved ones, who are to the core just as evil, only having righteousness in Jesus Christ, it's a tragedy when they die. Stop dividing the issues. We are at war against death, and the truth is we have victory over death. Purpose in your heart right now that you will never be glad or grateful that an evil person died again. I go back to the illustration of Nate Saint, who was a uh, missionary to Central America, carried a gun every day of his life, a rifle. And they went into the backwaters, and one day they were able to land, and the, they got to actually minister to this tribe that they've been dropping presents to for a long time. They didn't expect to have a problem. It was a murdering tribe. The tribe came and killed them all. When they found their guns, they never fired a shot. His wife said, that doesn't surprise me he didn't fire a shot because the guns were for the animals, not for people. So Nate died and went straight to heaven. But he wasn't going to send somebody who hadn't heard about Jesus yet to hell. Now, I'm not saying that's what you need to do. In fact, I'm actually telling you, the Bible probably says to you, you should protect yourself. You should protect your family if it comes down to that situation. But what I am saying to you is he was aggressively, aggressively faithfully moving forward, and even an Indian with a spear couldn't stop him. Even death itself could not stop him because he went straight into heaven. He had put all that stuff behind him. The world is full of these two-front war attempts to put us in that situation. Jesus said, there's no way. You can't go there. This is what it means to be a disciple, denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following after me. It was about purpose. But our enemies are very real, and they would love to put us in them. Let's think about death for a moment. You're familiar with this parable uh, in Luke chapter 12, maybe. I hope you are. If you're not, go ahead and read it. Write this one down, Luke 12, 16 through 21. About a man who was very successful. His lands were producing a lot of fruit. And, and all of a sudden, his barns wouldn't hold all the profits anymore. He said, I'm going to tear my barns down, build new barns, put them all in there. I use this, uh, this particular illustration at uh, Madhouse on Friday night. But what happened that very night? Jesus said, but this is what happened to that man that very night. God demanded his life from him. Death came for him. And then God said to him in the parable, or the man, death, when it came for him, said to him in the parable and said, so then uh, who will have all that stuff you've been storing up? Whose stuff will it be now? See, we are in a two-front war if we are worried about death. Death will take you. Your body will stop functioning. right? Your heart will eventually stop beating. But if you're saved, you go straight to heaven. 
That's Jesus' answer to death coming for us. It's also, in a way, Jesus' answer about riches, right? You put your riches to work and aggressively, faithfully moving forward for the Lord, serving, giving, winning people to Jesus, and you can't lose. If you lose all your riches, you will gain souls, gain your own soul. But don't be found on that day of your death not having used correctly those gifts that God gave you. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about marriage. He talks about being married. And he talks about how men, should, men and women should never get divorced. That God never gave permission for divorce. You know, there are a couple of specific cases. If that person moves into wickedness and they will not honor God and break their commitment, then the Bible gives you that opportunity. Or if they move into adultery, literal adultery, fornication outside marriage, then the Bible gives you that opportunity. But be aware that even then, there is a great hardness of heart that arises and the disciples said, if it's like that, then a man should never marry. And Jesus said, yeah, well, that's true for some folks. Some folks should never marry, basically, I'm paraphrasing. He said, some people can do that. They never get married. When a man gets married, Paul says, his, his attentions are divided. Remember what I said? Don't spread yourself too thin. It might not be your place to have a significant other that you're going to pour like that into. And if you are going to have a significant other like you're going to pour like that into, then it has to become someone that you can be one with. Someone who can literally be your same flesh. You know why? Because until then, you're fighting a two-front war. It doesn't mean you've lost that war yet, but you're t because the Bible also says that you may win that person to Christ, that by your chastity, by your commitment, by your uh, not leaving them, by your aggressively, faithfully following the Lord, you may drag them along closer to Jesus and they may get saved. But certainly don't throw yourself into that. That would be spreading yourself pretty thin to throw yourself into a relationship where the other person doesn't live for Jesus. Marriage can provide a two-front war. What does Jesus say about it? You marry, if you're going to marry, you marry the right person, become one with them. Paul gives us the opportunity in 2 Corinthians. He says, um, you know, there's fornication. That's a problem. So one way to stay away from fornication is to marry the right person. Right? So you become one with the right person. You have to worry about having sex outside marriage. Don't fight the two-front war of fornication. Also, in marriage, is the opportunity to know what it's like that Jesus loves the church and what that relationship is like. And so you, if you don't marry, you miss that. If you love your spouse and your heart is aching because they're not where they need to be, if you're married and you're here today and you know your spouse is not where they need to be and your heart is aching, hear me say this. That's how Jesus feels about his church. He loves them. He is the head of the church. He's become one with the church. And yet in our chairs, sitting here right now, are people who are not aggressively, faithfully moving forward for Christ. They're not putting things behind them. They're not resisting, stretching themselves too thin. They are not orienting their lives around single-purpose living for Jesus. And so every time you think about your spouse and go, man, I wish he or she would just pick up his stinking underwear off the floor, realize that Jesus wishes you'd pick up your metaphorical underwear too. He loves you like more than you love them. And so... That's an understanding. It's a painful one, but that's an understanding that arises out of marriage. And you need that understanding. You need that firsthand understanding if you can get it. But for some folks, he says, there are some who will not marry and they will be dedicated to God for their whole lives. I already read you Luke 9.23 or quoted it from memory. It says, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow after me and then you should be my disciples. That's how we deal with the enemy of self. And if I could say it this way, deny it means put it away. Stop wanting what you want and make your wants come in line with what the Lord wants. Don't you want to live forever? It's one way to do that. Want what Jesus wants because that's what he wants for you. Don't you want to be successful in everything? Well, yeah. Sounds really good. But what if a successful manager of finance is a person who uses their money to glorify God, gives their tithe, budgets, spends carefully, 
lives frugally, and invests in kingdom advancement their whole life. Do you want to be successful like that? Oh, no, that's too much work. Two-front war. That's how easy it is. Just like that. Family. Oh, this is a toughie. Family can become an enemy. Family can become a weakness. Jesus said, and I'll paraphrase it, and then if I do poorly, I'll actually flip there. He said, unless a man hates his father and mother and brother and sister, he can't come unto me. Now, let's be clear, Jesus never about hating anybody. We already covered that, right? Men are not our enemies. Women are not our enemies. Not your brother, not your sister, not your mother, not your father. Even if he abused you when you were a child or ran out on you and you never saw him again. Not if your mother was a drug dealer or a drunk or if she's living in sin. That's never your enemy. So he's not talking about hating people. He's talking about priorities. Here is how you can have a family and still not fight a two-front war. Make Jesus and the things of the kingdom more important in every single way. And when you are supposed to be preparing a Sunday school lesson and your children or your spouse or your brother or sister or your mother or father wants you to put down your Sunday school lesson and do something else for them, but you know God wants you to prepare this lesson, then you prepare the lesson. And you prepare the lesson, if necessary, with them standing there shouting in your face. It may take you a little longer, but you can do it. Talk to them. Explain to them. You know, you say you love me. I love you with all my heart. But I'm being just plainly honest. I love God more. That's when when Sherry and I got saved uh, about a year into our supposed marriage, uh, right, over two years into our supposed marriage, one of the agreements that we made was we would love each other more than any human being ever, but God more than that. And you can't be one unless you can have that kind of an agreement. But you also, if you're here today, you also haven't lost yet fighting that two-front war if you're still married. Money. Money can be an enemy. We know that the pursuit of money is the root of all evil. And money, by its very nature, accumulating and sometimes wafting away like a breeze, can lead you to pursue it. And the pursuit of money is the root of all evil. And so if you want to be wealthy, if you want your bank account growing, if you want the better, newer version of what you already have, or if you are insistent upon having the best when that's not necessarily what you need and what God would give you, then you are fighting a two-front war. It's very dangerous to value money because the truth is money has no value. None. Because you will die and not take one penny or anything that you've purchased with you to heaven. None. Store up rather treasures for yourself in heaven. Cares. Hugely important because according to the parable of the four soils, where Jesus says a farmer went out and he dropped some seed along the way, right? And he sowed some in the field, whatever. That, that one whole section, which seems to me to be like where we live a lot of times, it's growing pretty well. Everything's in good soil. It's growing pretty well. And then the cares come up and choke out the growth and make them useless. I wonder if this isn't where a lot of supposed Christians live. And and this is how Jesus says, fight the cares, or rather Peter writes, cast all your cares or anxieties upon me. Cast them all upon me. Let me deal with all of that. So even as I've been listing this here, and I'm saying to you that you may be wrapped up in a two-front war, and I've told you how to begin to avoid the two-front war or the additional two-front battles, You're saying, I don't know how to deal with this one thing that's stuck. I'm stuck in this situation. Here's how you deal with it. Cast your cares upon Jesus. 
move aggressively and faithfully forward and give that trouble, that problem, that difficulty, that thing that worries you over into his care. If you can't do anything about it, then what else are you going to do? Has a man ever added a day to his life by fretting about it? No, you can't. Therefore, turn it over into the hands of Jesus. Almost done with this list. Evil spirits can be an enemy. And John writes, test the spirits. Every, every spirit that comes uh, declaring that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of the enemy. It is of, potentially of God. Every spirit that comes not recognizing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, it is of the enemy. And so anything that leads you in any direction or shows you anything that does not immediately declare that Jesus is Lord, came in the flesh, and died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, took into account all temptations and all struggles and lived a sinless life. If you can't live your life in according with that evil spirit and according to those truths at the same time, then you have nothing to do with them. Rebuke them in the name of Jesus and they will flee. Ideas thoughts that come into your head, thoughts you might have. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that our minds are capable in Christ of tearing down strongholds, of destroying any idea that would set it up itself up against God. And thereby saying there are ideas that would set themselves up against God and our job is to tear them down, destroy them. Remember what I said? Destroy the hive. It's not just good enough that you have a thought. Just what I did. For about nine months after I got saved, I used to Occasionally, as I was listening in worship, whenever the resurrection would come up, I used to surmise to myself that it might have been possible that the disciples gave Jesus some kind of sleeping poison, and then they went to the tomb afterwards, and they gave him some kind of antidote and woke him up. I used to think it's called the swoon theory. They didn't really die. He was just unconscious on the cross, right? But I never mentioned it to anyone because I was afraid of what they would think of me. I was afraid that they might not have an answer. I'm like, well, what if they don't have an answer? What if that actually is a possibility? I really want to believe in Jesus. I've committed my life, and I know he's in me, and I got the, felt the Holy Spirit, and changes have been happening and stuff. What if I have? And so I would say nothing, and then a couple weeks later, it would come up again. That idea would pop up in my head again. And a month later, it would pop up in my head again. And maybe a day later, it would pop up in my head again. And I never dealt with it. Hear me now, that is not living for Jesus. That is not Christianity. That is not aggressively living for the Lord. If an idea pops up in your head that goes somehow contrary to what Jesus Christ is, his teachings, etc., you must deal with it. If you say, well, I've been having issues with my, insert whatever, and I keep having issues. Destroy the hive. Figure out where it's coming from. Reduce it to rubble. Pile rocks over top of it and never look its way again. Get aggressive and faithful and move forward in the Lord Jesus. Leave it in your dust so that you won't remember 20 years ago when God took away from you your whatever it was. Ultimately, I did a little research and found out that it was not possible that that would be true. It wasn't possible because of the effects of crucifixion. It wasn't possible because a Roman soldier who would have been an experienced executioner and a warrior who knew what when someone was dead ran a spear up into his side and punctured his heart. And I know he punctured his heart because not only because the scripture says so, but because it says blood and water flowed out and the scientists and doctors of that day could not explain that phrase being there. They didn't understand. But a few hundred years ago, man discovered that when a person is under extreme duress, their heart will develop a clear fluid around it like water. It's called a pleural effusion. And if you puncture their heart, then the water and blood will flow out. In a particular order, it will flow out. And that's exactly the order that it's listed in Scripture. God is big enough for your questions. you got a question, why haven't you asked it? 
Why haven't you learned the truth? Why haven't you crushed the hive of that discontent, that hive of that temptation, that hive of that struggle? You say, well, I'm not sure if I can do this because I'm not sure what the results will be, but it's what God wants you to do. Then you do it and let God determine the results. And after that, then look back and say, I can't understand why God did it that way, but God surely did it. And you'll be done. Just how important is it? Just how important is it that we stop being so unnecessarily squishy, that we live a determined fighting forward and aggressive and faithful front, that we stop living and fighting a two-front war? How important is it? Well, Jesus said that a man who puts himself, put his hand, puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Remember the story of Ai chasing the Israelites into the wilderness? And they stopped and they looked back at their town burning. And it was then that Israel closed in on them and crushed them. And that's the same thing that can happen to you. If you're running aggressively forward, working aggressively and faithfully for Jesus, and you stop and look back at something that matters to you, not as much as Jesus, but almost as much as Jesus, or maybe more than Jesus, or you stop and think about that problem that you haven't dealt with, you let that temptation rear its ugly head again, you listen to that evil spirit, you get distracted, you don't serve or give or sweat or bleed when you're supposed to. According to Jesus, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. How important is it to not fight a two-front war? You better get out of your two-front war because as long as you're still in it, you will not experience the kingdom of God. What is that? That is when God reigns in your life and deals with your issues. Isn't that what you want? That's the kingdom of God. It's worse than that. If you're still in a two-front war at the day that Jesus comes, and he says, come, according to what that says, you won't go. Because it says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it said. Which means if Jesus come and said, come with me for eternity, you would say, no, wait, I got to deal with my fires. I got to put up, I got to overcome this temptation. What about my family? What about my job? What about my income? What about my health? What about this problem? I almost, almost got my cancer cured. I almost got this point through to my wife or to my husband or to my friend that I've been arguing with them about. And that's what you'll say when Jesus comes again. Because it says, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, if you're fighting a two-front war, then you will divert in the moment that he asks you to come. And you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Not my words, his words. Luke 9, 62. Matthew 5, 30, Jesus said it this way. It's so important than this. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better for you to come into the kingdom of God without a right hand than it is to not come in at all. Now, obviously, he wasn't talking about self-mutilization and don't anybody go and cut their hands off. What he's talking about is how important it is to get set, to get determined, to not fight a two-front war. It's time we became aggressive and faithful to go forward in Christ. And you need to start thinking of your money and your time and your resources and your blood, sweat, and tears as grist for the mill. Just stuff that's useful to get the job done. 